want to begin by asking a question. This is the question. Deep down, are people basically good? Are people basically good? Now hold on, don't shake your head yet. Come with me. I love your instinct. Good. If you, if you were to remove all of the, you know, just the day-to-day stuff, and you, and you just really get down to the core of a person, at his deepest level, isn't there something down there that is good, righteous, something praiseworthy at his very core? You know, it feels pessimistic to say no to that, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel just kind of like, ah, I hate to say no to that. I would love to say yes. The way that you answer this question has a massive impact on the way that you will think about life, the way that you will live your life, the way that you will believe other people should think about life and live their life. In fact, if you turn on the news right now, and you want to see one of the most polarizing divides of our day, it really boils down to how you answer that question, doesn't it? Because if we could say yes to that, socialism wouldn't be all that scary, would it? We could trust that, that, that of core, everybody's okay, we're all good people, so we can just go for it, right? Parents, I want you to think about those precious little beautiful kids of yours. Oh, how often we think this way and don't even realize it. We talk about the innocence of children. And I I get what we're saying there. Obviously, the the world is corrupt and there's all kinds of, of things that we want to protect our children from. Yes. However, if you believe that your children are basically good at their core, your parenting is going to be radically different, isn't it? You're basically going to be like, just do your thing, right? Release them. Don't ever, you know, steer them or correct them or, or, or do, you see what I mean? If you answer this question, yes, your parenting is radically altered. If you answer this question, yes, you might be in favor of defunding the police. You see what I'm talking about? The the stuff that we deal with every day in the last year when we think news, like this is what is really happening. People have concluded that at the core, human beings are basically good. Watched a video this past week where a man was, he's selling a lot of books, and he's basically saying that the founding fathers they were just pessimistic and just negative. They were just so down on human beings, right? And we should, we should have a little more confidence in humanity, right? We are the world. We are the children, right? Remember that, 1985? We are the ones who are going to save ourselves. I couldn't believe the lyrics as I looked back over that. defund the police, encourage socialism. I'm I'm not talking politics here at all. I'm talking Bible truth. If you answer this question, 
in an unbiblical way, it will have devastating consequences for your own life and for the culture that is shaped by your answer. Deep down, are people basically good? We are going to have a text before us today that resoundingly and quite frankly, blatantly answers this question with a resounding no. 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 And it's not pessimistic. It's truth. It's, it's the truth of God. The title of my sermon, as you see in your sermon notes, is The Radical Depravity of All Humanity. The Radical Depravity of All Humanity. From conception to the grave. Left to ourselves. We are radically corrupt and depraved. That is a worldview that the Bible requires of those who would seek truth. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. We're coming now to the culmination of Paul's unbelievable and very precise building out of our desperate need for the gospel, for a savior. Right? He began by addressing the, the Gentile world in chapter 1. Then he moved in chapter 2 to address the religious world, right? the Jews, and, 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 and basically concluded everybody is in the same boat. And so we come to chapter 3. In fact, chapter 3 is fascinating. If you think of it this way, we, we enter into the courtroom of the Most High. I brought my gavel here. It's plastic, but here we go. That's not too bad for plastic. I should have filled it with sand or something. Hear ye, hear ye. What do you say at the beginning of the court thing? This court is now in session, right? We are in the courtroom of the Most High as we enter into this passage. The judge and the prosecutor is the Lord Himself. God Almighty. Creator. Author of life. The one whose image humanity is to glorify and carry and point to. The defendant is nothing short than all of humanity. All of us and every single person who has ever lived on the face of this earth. Except for one. I always have to put that in there. The evidence presented is the entire Old Testament. The law, the prophets, right? Everything in the Old Testament is presented now as evidence against us. The verdict is guilty unrighteous, not holy, unacceptable before God. That's where we're going today. And it's so important that we go here. This is gospel truth, friends. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There's a reason that wrath befalls humanity. This is the reason, right? This is, this is the reason. It's clear. This is the, the fullness of his argument now that he began in chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is coming. Why? Because we're guilty. We are condemned. And we are under his righteous justice. It's what we deserve, friends, apart from 
the gospel, apart from His grace in our lives, we are all together desperately hopeless under the wrath of God. Rightly so. So let's begin verses 9 through 12 with what I'm calling a, a universal condemnation. Universal condemnation. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, Paul says. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. You remember the, 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 the work last week? Is there no advantage, Paul, to being a Jew? Yes, there is, absolutely. You've been entrusted with the oracles of God. You have the word of God. Think of that, how amazing it is. And so then he anticipates the question, well, then we, we must be okay then. If we have an advantage, if we have the advantage of the word, does that mean that as Jews, we're not as in trouble as the Gentiles? And the answer is no. Even though you have the, the revelation of God, his law, you don't obey it. You're under it. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. What does it mean to be under sin? Well, scriptures build this out. He who commits sin is a slave of sin, right? So we are under sin in the sense that we are enslaved. Left to ourselves, we are enslaved to sin. We can't not sin. It's a, that's, that's, that's our instinct. That's, that's who we are. And, and you could say it this way. We don't have sin in our life. We are sinners at our core. We sin because we're sinners, not the other way. We're not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin out of who we are. It's who we are at our deepest level. We are under sin. Both those who have the law, who have a form of religion, and those who don't, who have the law written on their hearts. The man on the remote island who has never heard a word of the Bible, he is under sin, and he stands condemned before God. He faces wrath. All are under sin. Now listen to how this goes. This is what is referred to as, as a string of pearls. Only a man who was a genius expert in the Old Testament can do this kind of thing. And certainly we know, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit himself, Paul now strings together all of these verses, uh, just ch ch verses from these various chapters. And I didn't go to all the precise verses, but you can see an amazing, just kind of snowball of Old Testament truth that he is going to put together and level against all of humanity. As it is written, he begins in verse 10. This goes nine verses from 10 to 18. As it is written, Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 14, Psalm 36, Psalm 53, Psalm 140. Boom, just happens. He's just, here it comes. He includes Proverbs, a little from Proverbs 1, some from Ecclesiastes 7. I see Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 in here as well. As certainly Isaiah 59 and 64. This is a string of pearls that Paul puts all together to show, in fact, that we have a very, very serious problem. That every human being on the face of the earth is condemned under their sin. Let's begin this. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Wow. Well, Paul, boy, you're awfully pessimistic here. That is pretty negative, man. Did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed here? Is, is Paul just being kind of pessimistic in this, in the way he looks upon humanity? Didn't you hear the song, Paul, from 1984? We are the world. He's like, yeah, I heard it, right? That's my point. None is righteous. No, not one. He, he gives a double here. None is righteous. There's not anyone righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. You hear Isaiah 53 in this. All we like sheep have gone astray. He's always drawing from the Old Testament and then, and then putting this forward. Together they have become worthless. The, the word worthless there is, is rooted in this moral um, like value. What do we bring to the table? What do, what do our works accomplish? Uh, can we justify ourselves? No. No. Our works of goodness are of no value. The word worthless has at its root this, uh, this concept of spoiled milk. Spoiled milk. What do you do with spoiled milk? You don't drink it. You pour it out. I, I'm reminded of the, uh, the shutdown that we had last year when all these guys around here had to back trucks full of milk up to open fields and just kick the milk loose. Why? What do, you, what do you do with milk if you can't get it to the stores and process it soon enough? You dump it in a field. It is of no value. Our righteousness is not going to help us. No one does good, not even one. Ooh, I remember when I confronted this as a young man. I had a hard time with that. In fact, I remember having a discussion with my dad where I'm like, I don't, I, I can't agree with that. I, I just can't. I, I can't believe that. There's a lot of people in this world that seem like they're pretty good. They do nice things, right? They, they, they do good things. You're telling me that all of that is not good? How do we define good? How do we define good? God sees the heart. He judges the heart. He judges the motive. He judges where glory goes when the good is done. The quote-unquote good is not always as good as you would think when you see the heart. That which is not done in faith is sin. That which is not done for the glory of God is sin. Sinners do nothing in faith. Sinners do nothing for the glory of God, which means sinners do only sin. No one does good. Not even one. So we might say, well, that was a good thing. Thank you for what you did. An unbeliever does, does something good. And it's good according to this level. But the, the problem is, is that functioning deep within is a, a deficiency, even in the definition of good. According to God, ultimately... There is no good done in the world that is not done to his glory and in faith. No one does good, not even one. The question really begs then, to what extent has the fall corrupted sinners? To what extent are we corrupt? 
How pervasive is the effect of the fall on the sinner? And the answer is, it's complete. It's thorough. There is nothing in the sinner left uncorrupted by sin. Nothing at all. This is where we understand the doctrine of total depravity. This passage, among others, many others, brings us to total depravity. It means that we are totally depraved or completely depraved. There's nothing left untouched. Now, this does not mean that we are as bad as we otherwise would be. Like, for instance, I am a sinner, but I have not committed every possible sin. You see what I mean? That would be utter depravity. There are very few people I can even conceive of who are close to that, right? Even Hitler, who comes first to mind, he was not as bad as he otherwise could have been, but for the restraint of God that pushed the brake pedal to keep him from even far worse sins. So we are not utterly depraved, but we are totally depraved, completely pervasively or radically depraved all the way to to the core of who we are so at the core humanity is unrighteous and totally depraved that's what the christian believes that's what the bible teaches we don't have this super rosy positive view of humanity like just turn them loose and it's all going to be great no turn sinners loose and it's a mess It's a mess. None is righteous. No one understands. Do you see this? No one understands. That that means that the fall has affected our very thinking. Paul speaks of this as having minds that have been darkened. Darkened mind. We we have this, this reality that no one seeks for God. And we need to see that. That is a blatant and clear statement. No one seeks for God. Well, Pastor Jeremy, there are churches that are thought through and constructed and built to be seeker-sensitive churches. And and I would just say, Paul says, you're wasting your time with that. The world of the ungodly is not seeking for God. They don't want God. They want the blessings of God. They want a form of godliness, but the world of the ungodly is not saying we long to give glory to God. We long for the holiness of God. We want to bow to his will and obey him fully. That is not the inclination of the sinful heart. And it will never be apart from God's gift of grace. So what happens to a seeker-sensitive church that fills up with people who respond to this kind of catering to the whims of desire and want. Well, often you have this progressive Christianity unfold, which is, this word progressive is driving me nuts. Can we just agree Christianity has no need to progress at all? There's no progression needed here. Any Christianity that claims to be progressing is digressing away from the Word of God. How arrogant we think we are to say that we are progressing as we stand on the shoulders of those who have lived and died 
faithfully proclaiming the gospel. Our job is be faithful. We don't need to invent. We don't need to dress up the gospel. We don't need to apologize for anything in the word of God. Just be faithful and trust. Let Jesus build his church. No one does good. No one seeks for God. Our mind darkened. Our heart completely turned upside down, twisted by sin, such that we want the things that God despises and we don't want the things that God delights in. That's the fallen heart. And then some would say, well, what about free will, right? We, our will is untouched. We have free will still. And I would just say this. I mean, go back to the very first sermon in the series I preached on saving Saul. I don't believe at all in the notion of human free will existing whatsoever in our day. Adam and Eve had it, and that's it. All the rest of us do not have free will, not in the way that we think. When was the last time your will did anything that your mind and your heart were not inclined to? Your, your will is the tail on the dog. It follows wherever the dog goes. Your will is informed by your heart and your mind. You do what you want. Why do you want? Because it's something you believe. You see something. You see it as praiseworthy or desirable. And your heart says, ooh, I want that. And your will says, do it. There is not free will that operates in our day. We are not autonomous just floating around being like, oh, I think I'll do this. I think I'll do this. No, we are enslaved, friends. Our mind, our heart, and our will enslaved. We are under sin. Stephen Lawson said it this way, the will always follows the mind and the heart. It's helpful to think in this way, isn't it? It's not separate from it. From our statement of faith, we believe and teach that through Adam's voluntary disobedience to the revealed will of God, the entire human race fell. We, we, in Adam, chose rebellion. We together fell with him, incurring the penalty of spiritual and physical death and becoming subject to the righteous wrath of God towards sin. All humans are therefore guilty sinners by nature. It's in us. It's in us. It's who we are at our core. It's what we choose as soon as we can. By nature, choice, and by divine declaration, which is what we have right here in these verses. Inherently and totally depraved enslaved to sin, under sin, darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God through the ignorance. We are hardened in our hearts, morally and spiritually lifeless, dead. We, we, are, we are lifeless in our trespasses and sins and facing eternal conscious torment in hell. We are unable to see or enter the kingdom of God unless... Here's the key, the, the, the key transition. Key word. Unless they are born again of the Holy Spirit. Because of man's rebellion, God also subjected creation to futility, allowing adversity and suffering to serve as a constant reminder of man's sinful condition and need for salvation as we stood over the grave of Lee Taylor, staring death in the eye, aware what is this? Why is death a part of our reality? I made it really clear. It's because of sin. 
because of sin that we're here. And reminded all of us, we're all sinners. Lee Taylor was a sinner. But good news, friends. God made a way for sinners to be forgiven. And I know that Lee Taylor lives today face to face with Jesus. Someday that body that we laid to rest will break forth out of that grave. Here is the reality, the assessment. This string of pearls from the very words of God inspired by the Spirit of God through Paul has brought to the forefront the total or radical or complete and universal corruption and depravity of all mankind. There is no one righteous, not even one. That means not just out there, friends, but apart from God's work, nobody in here, not a one, could stand before God and say anything other. We have no defense. The question that we should be asking at this point Paul, I think the question Paul wants us to be asking at this point is how then is anyone saved? How is anyone saved? We don't carry within us the resources to, to see Christ and say, oh, that is wonderful. We, we, we see light and we say, stop that. Don't point that light in my direction. I want the darkness. I don't want Jesus. I don't want the gospel. That is that's us. That's what we do by instinct. The only way anyone is saved is that God saves people. God saves sinners. We're going to see that unfold as the chapters go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That will be increasingly clear as we walk through these weeks. God saves sinners that left to themselves would run to the fires of hell with all their might. Which is why we sing here today, right? That's why we sing. Amazing love. How can it be? How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Now, this depravity is displayed in various ways. Paul's going to build this out. Let's move quickly through these. Depravity first in words. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. What amazing imagery this is that Paul gives us. The open mouth is to the heart what the open grave is to the corpse. You see the connection here? We are dead, spiritually lifeless. We are haters of God insolent, disobedient. We don't uh, live in righteousness. And as soon as our mouth opens, left to ourselves, again, apart from God's grace, our mouth reveals the state of our heart. We speak out of the heart. That's where our words come. So Paul gives this imagery like open mouth is like an open grave. The stench of a rotting corpse is what you run into if you have some kind of an open grave for very long at all. Sinners who open their mouths and speak reveal a rotting core, not a good core. 
It is not what goes into the mouth, Jesus says, that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. It goes on, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words reveal our hearts. And left to ourselves, friends, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. Lying, cheating, deceiving, attacking. Listen to what James says. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body and set on fire, uh, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. When you open your mouth and fire comes out, that fire, again, for the unbeliever, it flows from the very fires of hell. That's the source. That's the depth of our depravity. Now, depravity in actions. Depravity in actions, verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and, and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Again, he's quoting from all of these passages of the Old Testament. The history of humanity proves these verses true, doesn't it? I mean, one of the things that we've got to say when we're talking about big social constructs like socialism, right? It's just say, look at the record. I mean, don't, don't we just have this unbelievable track record of devastation to look at and say, doesn't work, doesn't work. It is completely irresponsible to be ignorant of history for this very reason. It's one of the reasons why church history matters to the Christian. What we understand of our past has everything to do with the decisions we make in our present. It's one of the great success stories of liberalism in our day. The failure to know our past. History matters. <laughs> Maybe one of the great failures of the educational system. Or just revise it, right? Make history whatever you want it to be. Because truth is relative. That'll just cause the merry-go-round to spin. And all the mistakes and the stupid things of the past will be made over and over and over. Violence, war, destruction, and death. That's our legacy. Humanity, we're pretty good at that. We take all this amazing thing that, that God has given, all the gifts, all the, the intellect and, and these things, and not, not every single day, but the overarching display of this. It's a terrible train wreck of a story. Lastly, depravity and denial. This is the heart of it. It's very, the very core, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. What's amazing is that he would say this given what he's already said. I mean, just thinking, Romans chapter 1. Though they know God exists, they know who he is in part, right? His revelation is clear. They suppress that truth in unrighteousness and in ungodliness. They push it down. No, I don't want 
to acknowledge him. I don't want to give thanks to him. I will not fear him. Though you could sum it up this way. We know God exists. We know that what we're doing is wrong. That's true of every single person on the face of the earth. It's written on our hearts. Even without the law. Even without any scripture. And the assessment is, we just simply don't care. We don't care. We're not afraid of you, God. Well, he hasn't done anything to us yet. I seem to be doing just fine here. In fact, I'm advancing in life. Why would I care what God has to say? Hmm. Scary place to be. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Proverbs 30, verse 12. These man on the street interviews are fascinating. Who's the guy we were watching? Yeah, Living Waters guy. Comfort, Ray Comfort. Goes up, talks to people. Hey, are you a good person? Yeah, I'm a good person, but not perfect. Right? So I, that acknowledgement is always helpful. Not perfect. Okay, so we're already grading on a curve. Right? I mean, is, a, is that what God does? Well, I know you're not perfect, but you're better than this guy, so you're okay. No, that's not what he does. The standard of good is God. That is the requirement. And friends, none of us are good. No, not, there's no one who is good. Jesus in his own words. No one is good but God. And, which is an amazing thing because he was God saying that and, and, and it just missed. Like, There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their fear. Are you a good person? I'm a good person. Have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah. I've told, have you told a lot of lies? Well, probably. Uh, so you're a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Well, yeah, I guess so. So you're a thief. Have you ever had impure thoughts of another woman? Well, yeah. Jesus said that you've committed adultery in your heart. So you're a, a lying thief and an adulterer. I watched one the other day, and the guy's like, yeah, I still think I'm a good person. He's like, well, we'll add to the list self-righteousness. Right? The point is, we can say we're a good person till our dying day. But we know, we know we're not. This is the window into reality. Everyone knows this. And yet they suppress. And so they try to appease their conscience by saying, oh, I'm a good person. Look at all the good things I've done. Look at all the things I haven't done. Look at all the other people that I feel better about because they're worse than me. None of that matters. None of it matters. In those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the epitome of not walking in the fear of the Lord. Do whatever you want. I just, I am God. My will be done. I care nothing about what you think, and I'm not afraid of what you're going to do about it. I've seen kids treat their parents like that. It's instinctual. It's in you. It's in me. It's in us all. Apart from God's grace, we run that track all the way through the tape. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. 
pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech. God says, I hate. So think of this. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. To not fear the Lord is to what? Embrace it. Call it good. Excuse it away. Call it progress. Call it love and tolerance and condemn those who disagree. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now the final verdict, verse 19 and 20. The final verdict. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The entire world. That means every single person in every single location, in every time. Under sin, no response, no rebuttal, accountable and condemned. Guilty. But God, I, I you know, I, I, you realize this, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, there is no one who is a Christian who has never been speechless before God. To come to God with all the excuses of why your righteousness counts is not to come to God with faith in the gospel. To come to God and say, I got nothing. No defense. Guilty as charged. I bring nothing to the table but my trespasses and the ugliness of my rebellion and sin. I come empty to you. That is the only hope for sinners. The whole world is accountable to God and the whole world is condemned before God. Friends, that's why we have missions. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we pray and evangelize. This is a big deal. The people are living and that's one of the reasons we're open, right? That's why we opened when we did in the middle of COVID. People are living and dying and apart from Jesus Christ. COVID is nothing compared to this. Are you kidding me? We got the virus that makes COVID look like kindergarten. And it's everywhere. Everyone has it. For by works of the law, this is the push that Paul's been aiming at for all these weeks. For by works of the law, for by works, things that you do to try to obey or try to be good enough, to try to perform, to try to show yourself worthy. For by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous or justified in his sight. No one, no one, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, I brought my gavel, but... This is just woefully inadequate to represent the law. We need Thor's hammer for that, okay? Not a plastic gavel, but come with me. The law serves this purpose. What is it? To reveal our sin and grind us to dust in our selfish trust in ourselves. 
it just grinds us to the ground and shows us you can't be enough in yourself. You can't do it. You can't perform. No one can obey the law. You need a Savior. Until you come to that conclusion, Jesus is nothing. There's nothing there. Hey, just a great guy, kind of inspiring. Put some quotes up on your Facebook page. Beyond that, there's nothing that he offers you that you actually really need. But when you understand by the sovereign gift of God's grace to open your eyes, to feel the weight of your sin, and to find yourself flat on the ground at the foot of the cross, saying, save me. Save me from myself. I need a Savior. Hmm. Be like a great pole vaulter. Impressive. Let's say that we were all pole vaulters. But there was this one guy in the church. This dude could fly. Right? I've never tried. Has anyone tried pole vaulting? It's crazy. Have you? See? Okay. My dad used to pole vault in high school. And I, I just like, Maybe in glory, I'll give, I'll give this a go, okay? When I know that I can't die. Let's just say this guy was the best pole vaulter in our church, and he was just awesome. And, and, and then he's like, well, guys, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pole vault to the moon. What would we say to a man like that? Are you, what? You what? Dude, you're getting like 15 feet. Like that, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. That is not, well, you're not even close. You couldn't clear the roof of the church. You're not going to the moon. That's how foolish it is to trust in your works. What are you going to do? 15 feet? Whoa, that's pretty impressive. Friends, our works are so puny compared to the standard of God. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. Hmm. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. We watch these remodeling shows, and, and uh, you know, from time to time they'll get this house and be all excited. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's awesome. And you know, they're like, well, let's do remodeling. Demo day is their favorite day. It's actually what you do after that, where all the money goes. And then they're like, what did we do? And that's why we watch it, right? It's a, uh, that's probably not good. But anyway. They usually figure it out. They call in help, and, and it usually goes over budget. But here's what happens often. They dig on the floor, and, or they're under the, you know, the crawl space, and like, oh, that looks great. Everything looks great. And then they pull up one board, and it's like it disintegrates. Oh, we got termites. Now, the question is next. How bad is it? How far did they go? How much damage did they do? Friends, Total depravity means the entire house is corrupt. There is no board left untouched by sin. There is nothing to salvage in the house. It is a complete teardown. Bring nothing to the table. Only Christ. Only Christ. So our response this morning. I just want to put this out there for us, friends. We we have a gospel that necessarily offends people. 
Right? So the, the goal is not to be offensive with the gospel. We're not trying to get in people's face with a bullhorn and be like, hey, you terrible sinner, you're such scum. You know, we're not, we're not, that's not our goal. But the idea that people are going to need a Savior without the realization of their desperate need for one, that's, that's just games. You can't make that seeker-sensitive. The reality is that the gospel is not seeker-sensitive. Repent of your sins, or there will be hell to pay. That is a loving message of the gospel. The good news means nothing if, if you don't have bad news. We used to have this kind of assumed awareness. Oh, my sin is a big deal. Now, we've got to establish the bad news all over again. People have suppressed so successfully, and our culture is so embracing of this suppression that we've got to get back to this and say, listen, you're not a good person. You're not. Come with me on this. Come with me. Yeah, but I, my teachers said I was a winner. Right? I had 12 grades of self-esteem indoctrination. I am a good person. No, you're not. No, you're not. Neither am I. The gospel is good news for bad people like us. Left to myself, I am not a good person. You have to get to that place before Jesus means anything. I'm not a good person. I need him. And he didn't change me. Then three things, just to close. God's righteousness. God is righteous to sentence all of us to hell. Let's be clear. None of us deserves forgiveness. No one deserves life. He wouldn't have to forgive a person, and he would still be good and righteous and holy. Heaven doesn't have to be populated by God. Hell could be bursting at the seams, and God would be just as good. Do you see this? That's why we talk about grace. Because none of us deserve it. Salvation is all of God's grace. Which leads us to wonder and gratitude. That's why we say amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? And it leads us to evangelism and to prayer. Friends, one of the greatest reasons the church does not evangelize is because she doesn't see how desperate the need is of the lost we walk right past every day. I'm driving out of my neighborhood this morning and I'm seeing all my neighbors. And I'm just like, they're heading for hell unless they know Christ. They're out mowing their grass, throwing the ball. Like, what if they don't know Jesus? so we speak, we declare, we go, we initiate, we pray. That's what it means to carry the gospel. We believe these things. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you with the sober reality of our condition apart from your grace. Oh, it brings us to our knees at the foot of your infinite perfection and holiness it causes us to say who are we that you would set upon us this love and mercy and kindness and grace we don't deserve it great are you glorious and worthy are you we say thank you 
O God, for this gospel you have given. Thank you, Jesus, for your atoning sacrifice to to take all that depravity that's deep inside of me and pay it by your blood in full so that I can now possess your righteousness. Thank you for that. Thank you for washing me, for making me clean, for renewing my deepest levels from corruption and depravity to the righteousness of Christ. All glory and praise to you. Savior Jesus. Oh, Spirit, thank you for renewing our minds from darkness into light, for stirring our hearts to obedience, to to convict us of our sins and, and turn us to you each day through the power of your word applied in our lives. God, use us to shine bright in this place. Make us a grateful people, humbled by your grace, and make us a passionate people for the hope of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.